0: This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. I'd like to talk about the movie Cry of Freedom. I know everybody's heard about it and its depiction of child trafficking and the brutality of child sex slavery. Almost all of us know of its record-breaking run and the complicated history of its production and distribution. As it's turned out, the information about making the movie has become almost as notable as the subject of the movie itself. In this, it joins The Passion of the Christ and, oddly enough, Gone with the Wind in the category of the movie-making becoming as famous as the movie. All of these factors together make it a notable offering and a cinematic star. And by the time you come upon this, it may be the case that the movie is no longer at the theaters. This used to be a problem if you didn't get to see it when it opened in the theaters. You had to wait until it appeared at some other venue or perhaps hit the smaller theater circuit in the second run category. But these days, with streaming platforms and movie apps, almost no movie disappears. So there is no doubt many opportunities to avail yourself of watching and enjoying what the film offers. This work is also part of the growing expressions of art motivating people to an awareness of a topic we mostly don't know about. Child trafficking mostly is a kind of title, a description of a reality we're vaguely aware of, mostly don't know about that much. It's not particularly new. Warnings to children about being kidnapped are as old as I am, and no doubt much older than that. Even the literature of a century and a half ago contained alarms about those who would take children. So the reality of this practice appears to be perennial. It pops up just about everywhere. This film invites us to consider its presence and the price we pay as a society and as a people to live amid its costs. As part of this advocacy, I think the film succeeds. There's nothing new about the power of art to rouse in us the sensibilities otherwise numbed or blinded to the truths of the world. The, The book Uncle Tom's Kevin brought some of the truth of slavery home to those who had not been touched by it. Lincoln described its author, Harriet Beecher Stowe, as the little woman who caused the Civil War. The movie the best years of our lives, carried a message to the whole country concerning those who were coming back from World War II, scarred and changed. In a more contemporary vein, none of us can forget how powerful it was to watch the opening scenes in Saving Private Ryan. The wife of a four-star general, he who had been a newly commissioned second lieutenant at the invasion of Normandy, she said she'd learned more about her husband in the first 20 minutes of that movie than she had in 40 years of marriage. Art can change things, and so it is the case with The Sound of Freedom. One of the most powerful parts of the movie, for me, were the brief vignettes of actual abductions that, that happened at the very beginning of the movie. By look of them, they take place all over the world, and they are horrifying, all the more so since they involve very young children who are taken. As the movie unfolds, and there are more and more details about what this involves, this brief introduction kept coming back to me. They're not part of the production process and they don't involve actors and scripts and supporting casts. They're actual scenes of ghastly injustice being done, and they're sobering. This is not a movie that leaves you feeling good when you leave the theater. So, onto the plot An FBI agent is assigned to help root out a pedophile ring in the U.S. As he identifies and interrupts the process of of trafficking a brother and sister from El Salvador, he becomes aware of a powerful organization of those who have established and sustained the children's sex trade. Becoming aware of its presence, he's driven to change it. He does this even when he has to go over the head of his boss and strike out on his own. Ultimately, he's able to rescue both siblings and return them to their father. In the course of his work, he ruins this particular cabal of operators and puts them in prison. The film is based on a true story, and according to its source, is substantively true. It's a commercial product, of course, not a documentary, and so it operates according to the timing and details necessary for a full-length movie, but it's a good movie, made by people who who know how to make films and to tell a story that way. The overwhelming experience of watching it is the insight into the enormous evil Of the trade in human flesh while there have been a number of societal panics about reports of white slavery and pedophile rings operating under our noses this film goes a long way in justifying the reports of human trafficking and brings the reality home to us i first read the reports about the film with the same kind of wariness i reserve for any blockbuster reporting which is skepticism i remember the endless reporting about satanic child sacrifice during the last several decades. In fact, in the parishes of Duncan and Shawnee, numerous people told me over and over again that there were all kinds of things going on involving satanic activities and organizations right there in those small towns. But even with their breathless conveyance, I never found anyone who had seen or knew anything firsthand. Everyone was convinced it was real, although there was never anything definitive or certain. Apparently, this excitement was shared nationwide. The FBI even opened a long-running investigation into satanic child sacrifice, and over the course of years, never found one example. They went looking seriously, but found only what I found, that is, that there were lots of people talking, and those people were convinced their knowledge was scandalous and certain, but no one was able to provide any actual information. Eventually, the investigation was shut down due to lack of evidence. It wasn't because they didn't make any headway against the crime. It was shut down because they couldn't find a crime to follow up on. Now, certainly talking about the FBI's investigative powers has much less cachet today than, say, 10 years ago. But suffice it to say that they had a lot invested in finding out if there was something there, and they never did find anything. So I was ready to be cautious in following the outline of this story, but it didn't take long before I was completely immersed in the drama of the kidnapped children. Having read a few things about the process of separating children from their parents and the process of marketing their merchandise, I found the accounts in the film to have been realistic and plausible. If it's it's possible to acknowledge this reality without sounding either naive or grasping, the movie makers were able to communicate the process realistically and solemnly. That is, they didn't go in for lots of dramatic emotionalism or intense musical crescendos. Instead, they allowed the story to unfold at its own pace and with its own logic. This made the storytelling carry us along and bring us at our own speed to the conclusions. Not all producers know how to tell good stories. These did. Eventually, the man in pursuit of the kidnappers is able to find the missing children and bring them home. This involves some very risky behavior on his part and some truly dramatic action. It involves his going undercover in very dangerous circumstances and taking risks all out of proportion to the probabilities of success. I don't know how much of this is part of the real story and how much of it was drummed up by Hollywood. In my opinion, it was a bit overdone. However, I'm willing to acknowledge that such things portrayed in the film have happened, so I did have a willing suspension of disbelief in order for the story to come to its conclusions. It may really have happened just that way. There is a moment in this last bit of action in which one of the characters conveys the ickiness of the reality of child sex trafficking, and its awfulness lies in the context that we've been led into. If a person were to say what he said in a different context To a spouse, for example, it would have been perfectly fine, and the presumption of intimacy and companionship he was basing his actions on, if it had been part of a long-term equitable relationship, would have been fine. At least, they wouldn't have made our skin crawl. But his words and actions within the orientation of child sexual exploitation were grotesque. The filmmakers were very skilled in bringing us to this point with their skillful storytelling allowing us to feel the travesty of the moment as it took place in the story. After all, in this crime, context is everything. Unless we understand and then experience it in the story, there's no story at all. And we're led to this with real story storytelling skill. More than anything else, I felt a deep sadness as I watched the story. There's true goodness portrayed, and the main characters are real heroes as they risk their own lives for others. As one of the character explains his motive, I found real heroism. That is, he explained himself in terms of his brokenness and weakness, not simply by way of his high ideals and clear understanding. He was a champion for good with a human face and a human soul. His willingness to be the man he could be, rather than a paper cutout of what he imagined a true hero would be, is what made the movie for me. But the deep, twisted evil of the characters is almost too much to watch their willingness to trample on the childhood of these children and then turn their backs on them is disturbing all the while the story is being told i kept thinking of the presumptions of so much as what is of what is told in our modern world that is we've been assured throughout the last generations that our deepest motives are honorable and our ultimate nature is good there are mistakes that are made sure and people can choose real evil but at bottom we are told we are profoundly good and, and we are pointed in the direction of goodness, but it cannot be so. In a world in which there are networks developed to steal children and to exploit them, using them because of their innocence and vulnerability, it's much more realistic to presume evil at the heart of man than any other descriptive element. These people doing the, these egregious things are evil. And they are constrained only by those who would choose to oppose them and their actions. The heart of man is not just broken and not just bent. This would imply some crippling incapacity that might hinder or obstruct them in what they do. But it is otherwise. At the heart of those portrayed in this movie, there is evil. And it results in an active, purposeful, and deliberate desire to do what is evil and to achieve what is destructive and annihilative. They're not incapacitated in any way. There's even a sort of evil capacity opened up in them. It's frightening. This has been portrayed, of course, in a thousand gangster movies. Lately, it's reached a kind of height in The Sopranos and The Goodfellas and one of my favorites, The Departed. These characters seem to gladden in their evil and their betrayal of any human character or sense of compassion. They become lost in their willingness to give themselves over to the logic of their violence the energy released in them becomes so overwhelming, they become lost souls. But in the sound of freedom, the awfulness of the people involved in this business is less distinctive and more bland. They seem completely unattached to the horror of what they do and the ruin that they're realizing. It's all about merchandise for them and not much else. In fact, the overwhelming creepiness of the movie is that the men and women who purchase these children and use them are not generally portrayed as the obsessed kink addicts that we might think of. Mostly they're operators who seem to be at least as interested in easy money as they are in out-of-bounds sex. As we're allowed to look over their shoulders by the portrayal in the movie, we see the banality of evil, so-called. They really are nondescript faces moving through the crowd of life, unnoticed, except for the trail of horror and heartbreak they leave behind. If only it were true— that the devil's minions really did have horns, we could at least feel some sense of their presence and know their identity. But it is not so. They have the faces and features that we see around us every day, which is why we're invited to see in this portrayal one of the unpleasant realities in our world, which is the work of evil take place. It's the willingness of these characters to give themselves over to their participation in it that makes them so menacing. And to know they can bring about this level of horror and displacement is to know such capacities also live in us. The careful participant in this drama does not leave the theater glad he or she is not made of such fragile stuff. Instead, if you go and watch and listen, you know such capacity for awfulness touches all of us. The monsters in this film are not another species. They are you and I in different circumstances. And who knows? They may be you and I simply in different clothes. I wouldn't be opposed to showing this movie to a high school religion class in order for, to open up to them the topic of sin and evil. Certainly, we could progress toward a series of conversations about the origin of evil and the cooperation of the human heart. It would be fascinating to dissect the classical teaching of evil as privation. That is, that evil has no essence or existence of itself but is only the lack of what is good or satisfactory. Hearing this old-fashioned explanation, we might be led to believe it has no power, and therefore the warnings about the malignancy at the heart of man are overblown. Spending some time with the drama in this movie would reap a real harvest of understanding and caution among those who are becoming old enough to question what they know of the world and what people tell them of it. And to this end, I compliment the movie makers in their skill in portraying the reality thoroughly without explicit images or descriptions or actions. Those of us who know what's taking place are thoroughly informed. If it were the case that a much younger person were watching, he or she would not be offended or titillated by the progress of the film. There's a gripping scene early in the movie in which the FBI investigator goes to the computer file of images of a man they have arrested for child pornography. The scene goes to a relative close-up of the FBI agent's face with vague images and colors reflected on the curvature of the lens of his glasses. We can't see what he's seeing and the reflections give away nothing, but his squinting eyes and his growing anger portrayed in his face tell us all we need to know of the quality and content of the images there. It is skillfully done. I think it's also the right way to go about it. Were it filled with the disgust it strives to undo, or it was a vehicle for the offense it attempts to write, it would self-destruct. But none of this happens. All such things are off-screen, which, as in horror movies or in movies about aliens or the devil, what remains invisible is all the more terrifying for it being so. Another, another takeaway from the movie is how widespread this reality is. I suppose it's fair to say we have grown in our appreciation of the world-scaling interconnections of every part of our day-to-day lives. For example, with the invasion of Ukraine, we found out that drill pipe for our oil wells and a huge amount of our fertilizer all come from there. Who knew? And we found out that their labs provided a good amount of the necessary chemicals and necessary material for our labs and workshops. That was all a surprise to me. Disruption in one part of the world including in a place most Americans couldn't find on a map with 20 tries, caused disruption all over the world. It's because we're all connected to one another in ways we can hardly even imagine, much less denote and understand. So it is with the powers of evil. Second and third world countries seem to be as heavily involved in this behavior as any other place, and probably more so. They make up links in the chain of trafficking, that bring people from all over the world to the most lucrative and voracious markets. To our shame, this includes the U.S. There's money to be made here because the appetite here is unfulfilled. In the film, it was taken for granted that people from Salvador, Colombia, Mexico, Russia, Thailand, and other places were all involved in bringing children from their places to the U.S., as well as being part of the pipeline running from other places to their contacts here. Its depth and organization are almost beyond imagining. According to one of the dialogue points in the movie, trafficking now exceeds the proceeds of the arm trade and is overtaking the drug trade in volume and profitability. It's big, biz- big, big business. And while it's not a great focus of the movie, this huge trade no doubt involves members of the government and the places it touches, including in ours. The power of evil pervades, and its shadow can darken almost every place no matter its history or its purpose. The good news of the film is that individuals can make a difference. While the FBI agent became the hero in this movie, he's aided by the individual who has had an experience of God and wants to serve and live for good. It is his decision and his actions that make the positive nature of this story possible. The trained investigator with the weapons and know-how is useless without this one man who's turned his life to good After a lifetime of evil, they achieve good together, but rescue comes in the most unlikely packages and among the most unlikely persons. We're reminded of this over and over again, and it's a good lesson. I like this movie and I recommend you. I recommend you see it. It's not perfect. For one, I thought it went on about 20 minutes too long, and some of the action scenes at the end are a bit overdone, and it wraps up a little too neatly to be dramatic as it strove to be. And so it tended to be filled with just so moments, allowing the story to leap forward in ways that might not, that might have been a little too convenient to be taken at face value. But those are minor faults. Great works of art are great precisely because they're larger than the faults they contain. While I hesitate to put this film in the category of greatness, I do hope that it is, I do hold that it to be worthwhile and important. You won't be wasting your time watching it. And the last part of the movie is actually the most sad for me. At the end, the children are returned to their father and the place of hope and love where their movie began is restored. All has come full circle. What has been interrupted has been healed. We're left with a little girl in a room, reunited with her family and her simple good things of life. Except I know it's not true. Nothing in the lives of those children and their father will be the same. It's not possible to be exposed to the truth of such abuse, especially sexual abuse, without being scarred, sometimes for life. Having become the object of another's appetite and having been used with no regard for limitations or capacities, these children are wounded and damaged. To have been rescued from ongoing harm is only the beginning for them. None of them are going to be the same. And their chances for being able to negotiate their way in the difficult world of adulthood, especially through the many challenges of a fulfilled, wholesome adult sexual relationship, is almost nil. Some things you can't undo, and there are many things you can't unsee. So it will be for them. From the restoration of their freedom, they almost need an exorcism of the pernicious power of memory and fear to continue wounding them. I almost wonder if there isn't a religious order waiting to be born to care for those who find themselves in such a nightmare. Perhaps a mother Catherine Macaulay or a mother Teresa is waiting in the wings to satisfy this crying need. The point is, the spirit must move to heal and to restore. Focusing only on rescue, if we imagine finding and putting the bad guys in jail is insufficient. If we're going to open our eyes to the truth of this reality, we need to pray for healing as much as for justice. Make an effort to see the sound of freedom. You'll appreciate that you did. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to our final segment, uh, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called In the Confessional. In the confessional, the door shuts with a squeak as the penitents enter so slowly. Many are there to be shriven each week, the haughty and the proud, the humble and lowly. And we, those who sit on the other side of the screen, we imagine in this ceaseless procession, the world is crowding in as their sins boil and teem. The awfulness of their sins can fade and lessen. So much, in fact, the temptations can possess us that there are, there is a new grace at work in the land, and all are ready to find the Lord thus in the sweep of my ready, absolving hand. But it is incumbent to remember thus we see and hear a dedicated, graceful crowd, small and select from the sum of all of us whose awareness and sorrow sound so loud. While so many of the rest, they in darkness never choose to line up or kneel at the screen, For them, there is no measure and no test. They are untroubled by all they've done and seen. Such is the world, of course, always is it so. The lost are lost beyond their easy bounds, but unworried they easily come and go, their feet hardly touching the stony ground. It is they we must occupy and reach, to be the object of awakened desire. Our true contentment must be each to each, as we cause to flame up their inner fire. That's in the confession. that we always have is to go deeper, the invitation that we can begin to experience and to understand our faith in more faithful ways by uh, making our relationship and our faith in the Lord deeper. So we hope that you can join us in the days to come. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.